The Remedial Herstory Project is a nonprofit working to get women's history into the primary and secondary history curriculum. To help us meet our goal, we produce media, lesson plans, and so much more. You can check it out on our website, www.remedialherstory.com. Our project is funded through grants and by patrons, potentially like you. Thank you to our patrons, Jeff, Barbara, Christian, Kent, Jamie, Jenna, Nancy, Megan, Leah, Mark, Nicole, Anne, Sarah, Alicia, Katia, Michelle, Jessica, Laura, and Jackie. If you would like to join these wonderful people and become a patron, you can head over to patreon.com and become a supporter of the Remedial Herstory Project. You too can help us reform education and allow women to be seen, heard, and complicated. Hey, Kelsey. Hey, Brooke. Want to tell everyone what's happening in today's episode? Brooke, in today's episode, we are introducing our next theme, Women Explorers and Pioneers. Oh my gosh. Yes. Get ready. It's going to be freaking awesome. See you there. (laughs) Hello and welcome to Remedial Her Story, The Other 50%, the podcast that explores what happened to the women in history class. Now, here's your host, Kelsey Brooke Eckert, and her partner in crime, Brooke Neva Sullivan. Our next theme, Women Explorers and Pioneers, is going to be looking at women who defied the odds, (laughs) did things differently, went where no man or woman has been before. (laughs) Usually no woman, but sometimes they even have the title of no man has done that either. I mean... Love that. Love it. I like how vigorously you're introducing this topic. It's very (laughs) aggressive. We have some really exciting episodes for this theme. We have women who explored the White Mountains of New Hampshire. We have women who went out into the western frontier. Lots of hand gestures happening over here. Sorry, I (laughs) I do talk with my hands. (laughs) And for our part in this, we are going to be talking about women who went up, up into the air or up into space. Oh, so many cool women come to mind. I actually know a lot of women that have done these things for some reason. I'm like, my brain is populating many a name, which I'm so excited about. Nice. Usually when you wrote your top, I'm like, "Mm -hmm." mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's dead air over here. Yeah. Today, you got something. Firing. Firing. All neurons. Synapses are pew, pew, pew. Yeah. I'm like, I know her and her and her. Oh. That's exciting. Yeah. This is a really important theme. Um, for a number of reasons, but I think importantly, women were pioneers. Women were willing to defy convention to, and especially when we talk about like, you know, mountain exploration and aviation and space and all these things, these are like male dominated worlds that women are usually putting on clothing or outfits that are very not feminine. Oh, they're all every thing has been tested scientifically for men. Right. Yeah. <laughs> not women. Right. Not designed for them. No, like clothing. Hiking boots. <laughs> yeah. None of the above is right. supposed to fit uh, for the female. Sometimes I go into places like REI or EMS or wherever, Sierra Mountain, whatever, and, and I'm like, what woman 
Who's hiking? <laughs> Where's like hot pink? I mean, maybe she does exist. Me. You. Okay. <laughs> You're the one. Oh my gosh. You know, I'm such an avid hiker. Yeah, but it's like, man. Anyway, that's no, probably the opposite of what you were saying, but I can live with that with you. Okay. But I also, for a very long point in my life, wanted to be an astronaut. Yeah. Things to know about me. I had my dad painstakingly put How's your math skills? Uh, not bad actually. Math, mm-hmm. science, I score really well in. Excellent. Um, wanted to be an English teacher for some reason. I'm really sure where <laughs> that where that was. Um, but my dad painstakingly on the ceiling in my bedroom put every constellation of the northern sky during the summer months. Oh, so I had all of the constellations. Dang, yeah, that's commitment. And then he painstakingly took them down when we had to repaint the room. Oh, no. Like, that's a committed parent yeah, right there. Nice job, love. Dickie. That's love. Nailed it. He's like, I am going to have a daughter in STEM. Yeah, and How- it was it was fun. But I can remember learning about a lot of the women that go into the NASA program mm-hmm. actually go to Duke as an undergrad. Ooh. And so I was like, dead set. Got to go yeah. to Duke. Got to get into NASA. Yeah, done. And obviously that career path worked out for me. <laughs> but I'm so excited about this topic, obviously. Yeah. But I, I think it's really important to talk about how women were also doing these things alongside men, often overshadowed by their 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 male peers who were doing those things. Mm-hmm. But, I, but, but then again, there are also exceptions to that. And we're going to talk about one of those exceptions today. Yay. Amelia. <gasps> Earhart. Yes. I love her. I love her story. All that comes to mind, though, when we talk about explorers mm. is the little um, Pixar girl from Up. Oh, my gosh. Boy. <laughs> the little boy from Up. Well, there's a boy from Up, but, oh, the, but the wife. Oh, but the girl, his wife, who does. She's the explorer. She, she is the explorer. And he she goes sets for the her. adventure book. Yeah. Nailed it. She's so cute. I do love that. Okay. So I want to talk about Amelia Earhart, and I knew you would know her name. Do, did you know that she's nicknamed Lady, Lady Lindy? Yeah. Okay. So, do you, Lindy, do you know where that comes from? Lindenberg? No. Uh, Charles Lindbergh. Thank you. Yeah. And so he, so oddly, I want to start this story by talking about him. I know it's like bizarre. Are we going to talk about his kidnapped child and do true crime? Well, hold the phone. Oh, okay. Sorry. This is like, I know these things. I clearly do. <laughs> okay. So, Charles Lindbergh. First person to uh, fly plane across the Atlantic. Pretty big deal in aviation. And we're talking about, just for our audience who doesn't know, time period-wise, what years were these? Um, So this is like, think think like 20s, 30s. He's really significant in the pre-World War II period in terms of like geopolitical stuff. Cool. Um, Because he's such an important person in aviation by that point, by the mid-30s, um, he is brought over to Nazi Germany to in, in, inspect their air force and airfields and see what sort of, you know, this is also in the like the like pride of the Nazis come see what we we can do, you know, sort of showing off their military prowess. Hmm. And th- that's going to become problematic. And I kind of want to tap. And he was that. American, right? He's American, okay. right? Um, but he was he it was very interesting in the pre-World War II period. So we'll we'll hold that for later in the story. But okay. so this is Charles Lindbergh and his wife, Anne Moreau Lindbergh, was also in aviation and also 
broke a lot of firsts for women. Tell me more. And actually broke more than Amelia Earhart did. Uh, what? Record scratch. <laughs> right? But what's so funny, so I I did I guess I didn't really pay attention to nicknames like Lady Lindy, but I was like, wait a second. Amelia Earhart got Lady Lindy when there actually was a Lady, Lady Lindy. Lindy. <laughs> now I'm mad. Right? So it was kind of funny. So anyway, um, these two women. Funny or wrong? <laughs> um, both of those things okay. can be true. <laughs> Let's just lean into the facts here. <laughs> um, both of these things can be true. And so I thought this might make a really interesting dynamic. These two women don't interact a ton in their life um, because they are so different from one another. Um, mm. But yet they're content. One wears pants. <laughs> <laughs> they they are very different from each other they are you know their attitudes about flying are very different and i think that's partly why we remember amelia Earhart because her passion for it is mm. just like unreal and they are both married but they both look at their marriages differently and they're just so women are different kelsey they have different perspectives i know that's really bizarre <laughs> I can't. It's my brain. Now, these two women are not the first women in aviation, and nor would they be the last. Give it to us. Oh. Show us the receipts. <laughs> Probably one of the first people you have to talk about when you talk about aviation, women in aviation history, is Catherine Wright. Of course. Whose brothers are the, the Wright, Wright brothers. brothers, right? She went in the plane with them, um, and so she has some interesting firsts from, like, being up there. So they did demonstration flights in France in 1909. And so she actually gets firsts for like the first woman to fly. And, you know, she's not um, piloting the plane, but she's yep, like in, in it, it yep. you know, risking her life in the I've chaos been there, that was to their field. Oh, really? Yeah. Nice. Very so cool place. She, Outer Banks. Oh, really? Yeah. You can hang glide off of the same places that they hang glided off of. Oh, that's it's cool. a really cool experience. That's cool. So her brother, Wilbur Wright, said, if ever the world thinks of us in connection with aviation, it must remember our sister. I thought that was a really cool quote. It is cool. To like acknowledge Catherine's contributions. I'm going to skip over a lot of like early women that could be mentioned. But one of the, the big ones we should mention is Bessie Coleman. She's the first African-American period of either gender to get her pilot's license. And I think that's kind of a big accomplishment first that she like beat all the African-American male aviators to that title. Wow. And get it. What's crazy. Yeah. Bessie Coleman. What's crazy about her story is that no American pilot schools would train her because she was black. Did she go to France? So she went to France. Where most African-Americans went to learn these things, which yeah. is kind of cool during, I don't know, There's I've heard a lot of stories that France was very open. Yeah. Unfortunately, um, she dies testing a new plane that she had received Ugh. in 1926. So she only has that pilot license for about five years. Who gifted her that plane? Yeah. <laughs> You're in trouble now. We need now. to know their name. <laughs> um, Unladylike 2020 has a great video on Bessie Coleman that cool. you could watch with your students if you are a teacher. And um, anyway, I just think she's she's incredible. Short time period, but like so incredible for sort of defying hmm. defying those odds. And then, of course, we get to the um, late 1920s. And this is where people like Amelia Earhart 
and Anne Moreau Lindbergh come into the store. Let's do this. So let's start with Anne Moreau Lindbergh because she's just so less known. Yeah. Let's bring her up. Let's say her name. So she is um, a young graduate of a women's college. Ooh, which one? Drum roll, please. Oh, man. Bro. Come on. I always ask my questions. I don't know the answer to I need receipts and facts. This is where we live. She went to Smith College in Northampton, Massachusetts. She graduates in 1928. And um, shortly thereafter, she meets the dashing older Charles Lindbergh. I know. He gets a lot of fanfare back in the day for being a very handsome man. Mm-hmm. And like people are all about him. They. She's interesting. She is... Kind of this, she wants to be a writer. She's She loves poetry. She's a good author. Um, she's kind of a bookworm and very different than you would think of this pioneering aviation lady to be. She's also pretty brave, though. And so Charles Lindbergh, you know, takes her up in a plane and she's like, ooh, this is fun. And she does it, you know. So she's like not timid per se. Okay. Cool. Despite being a a bookworm. One of the things that's really cool about Mrs. Lindbergh, Anne, is that she, so much of her life is recorded in her diaries and she writes prolifically in her later life. And and she's uh, really well recognized for her literary talents. And so, so much of her thoughts and ideas and perspectives are known to us as as historians. And you can like read these as primary source accounts cool. of a lot of different important periods like the 20s, 30s, 40s, and so on. Flying side by side with Charles Lindbergh and going on a bunch of adventures with him, she actually starts setting all of these firsts for women in aviation. She goes on these, you know, trips and these adventures that a lot of people just wouldn't have access to. And part of that is because she's married to the most famous aviator alive, right? Yeah, they're like, I'm sorry, what'd you say? He's over here? Yeah, right. (laughs) They end up having a child. And their first child, and this is a really horrifying story, and if you've never heard it before, look out. It's an look interesting out. One. It's really hard. So one evening, um, they have a nanny who's watching their their young baby. Um, and the nanny puts him to bed in his crib and leaves leaves the room. But actually, like, I feel like this is more than I would do, but the nanny would like regularly check on him, like poke her head in. And granted, I mean, it's a period. If someone's paying you to do it, you yeah, do it. you do it. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> and um, somewhere in between those checks, you know, and you have to put into context here, the Lindberghs <laughs> are perhaps American royalty. Like they are the they are very well known. They in this are time period. so <laughs> famous, and and part of you know, for a quiet bookworm lady like Anne is. This is a huge adjustment for her to be married to such a famous person mm-hmm. and to have so much of her life so public and so exposed. The nanny checks in. She walks away. And somewhere in between these checks, the baby is taken out of their crib and is gone, is kidnapped. Uh, yes. And 
And there's, you know, this massive manhunt to, to try to find whoever did this. There are rewards given. So the, many headlines. Lindbergh baby. It was yeah. like on everything. Everything. Um, the Lindberghs offer rewards. They have all these people that call them. A lot of them are dead ends and people who just want a chance to meet the Lindberghs. You know, just kind of the drama that people deal with when they're trying to, you know, find their kidnapped ch- baby, you know. Right. The baby is is found later dead and and most likely had died immediately, which is really sad. Like the kidnapper, it was up on a second story that they had like put a ladder up to get to the baby's room. And so it looks like they dropped the baby like in climbing down and out of this space. Mm. So it's it's pretty horrible. And what a horrible way to to start this marriage. They go on to have many more children. And one interesting thing about their marriage dynamic is that Charles Lindbergh is really, and this is so weird in the context that she's in, like she just lost a baby and now has subsequent babies. And I don't know about you, but as a mother, I feel like if I lost a child in such a horrible and public way, any other children that I had, I would just cling to. <laughs> and and maybe there's some psychologists who would <laughs> who would disagree with me. But no, I think you're accurate there. I think it's it's it is traumatic. It's their first child. And the baby it was very much treated like public royalty at the time as well. You know, mm-hmm. he's the son of these two really famous, very beautiful people. And so people were interested in this topic. And I can't imagine that she was able to go and hide or her husband to really hide away from this really horrific moment. Mm-hmm. Charles gives her grief for clinging to their children too much and regularly planned trips to try to get her away from them, to like separate, segregate her from her children. To contrast her with Amelia Earhart, uh, you know, she really, as much as she's like capable of being an aviator, she really wants to be a mother too. And she wants to be a wife and she wants him to be home. And he doesn't, want to be home and he wants to be off adventuring and she's a woman who wants to have all of it she wants to have all these things and can't and because of the person she's married to he's also like routinely trying to break essentially like break her of what he sees as bad habits right like you love your children too much so we need to leave I imagine in that time period that there was, you know, and this is 1920s mm-hmm. at this point. And so my brain immediately goes to like, don't baby them and it won't make them tough. Mm-hmm. Like, so the more you mother a baby, the worse it'll be. And so I also think that there's probably a little bit of that from from their relationship as well, which is, I don't think, atypical in that time period from from what we know. Some of these trips that she took with Charles were really incredible. Mm -hmm. One of them was an adventure into Asia. She wrote a book in the late 1930s about this called North to the Orient. She also wrote a book called Gift from the Sea. And basically in both of these, she talks about some of their 
um, aerial adventures that they go on. She talks about going to these like incredibly remote places all around the world so that they can fly into places that no one has been before. She talks about, in some cases, being the only white person that some of these people have ever seen in their lives. And it just gives you a sense That's of like wild. how far out she is. She at one point interacted with some Eskimos. Um, she said two little Eskimo boys came up shyly and, sh- and followed me about. Their bright eyes shone under their caps as they searched my face and costume curiously. And one of the traders explains, you're the first white person they've ever seen. Um, there's never been one this far out here before. So pretty, pretty amazing experience. And she, you know, she got to have that sort of on the tails of her husband being being pretty incredible. But their relationship is pretty bizarre. And I guess how I, and maybe this is a stereotype, but how I think of relationships in that period where there's a lot of repression of perhaps true feelings. He hated the way that she showed her emotions to their children. He saw it as a weakness. And, you know, their their relationship was really complicated. Eventually, they start living pretty separate lives. And, mm-hmm. you know, they probably are one of those couples that pre the, the like liberalization of marriage and love right. and all those things probably would have gotten divorced, let's be honest. But maybe not. I mean, who knows that they're, you know, I don't want to speculate about those things. But I mean, we know that he cheats on her in in numerous occasions, and um, he eventually dies in Hawaii. And she goes on to have this, like, really long literature career and and writes and is a powerhouse in her own regard. These guys um, both are pretty controversial in the World War II period. Charles Lindbergh gives... A lot of anti-war speeches, which Mm -hmm. um, came more from – he founds the America First Committee. And this is a phrase that I'm sure you've heard more recently because Donald Trump started using that phrase. Oh, good. America First. The America First Committee is basically the most isolationist organization in American history. As things are picking up in the Pacific and in Europe, a lot of isolationists are worried that the United States is just going to fall right back into another world war. And we had just fought World War I. It was bloody. It was horrific. And Europe's already back at it within less than a generation. Yeah. So a lot of people want to stay out of this war as much as possible. And the general sentiment among Americans is pro-isolation. Stay out of it. Charles Lindbergh starts giving speeches that are isolationist in nature, but they're also very U.S.-centric in nature. And he's trying to say, you know, even though there's this humanitarian crisis happening over there, we don't need to be involved in it. Mm-hmm. Um, Dr. Seuss, who a lot of us probably <laughs> know from childhood books, Geisel. he, uh, yeah, he's writing during this time period and he creates all these great political cartoons that critique the America First Committee. And when I teach about this period in my U.S. history or world history classes, I love to show the cartoons because I love, I think they speak 
you know, better That's than... That's fun. I didn't know that about him. Yeah. So he, he draws these cartoons of the America First Committee being ostriches sticking their heads in sand. <laughs> um, he has this mom who's reading a children's book to her kids at night. And she's like, and the big Nazi wolf comes and eats all the children's bones and spits them out. But don't worry, they were foreign children, so it doesn't really matter, you know, and just like (laughs) these like horrible critiques of the America first idea and the lack of like humanitarian empathy that this whole ideology is displaying. So anyway, so it's kind of, it's kind of interesting. He gives a speech at one point, and you could certainly find the direct quote from this um, on any it's very easily findable the american first committee basically says that it makes sense that the jews of europe would want the united states to come and defend them and free them but just like it makes sense for them to speak up for their own self-interest we need to speak up for our own self-interest over here and sending americans to go die in a war to liberate the jews is not in our self-interest And he is immediately critiqued for being anti-Semitic. And (laughs) (laughs) which there's a lot of documentation on that, I'm imagining. Tons. Yeah. And Anne Moreau is sort of stuck in the middle of that. She, at the time, plays the good housewife and is right next to him the whole time as he's saying these things. And so she, people try to, like, appeal to her, you know, humanitarian and ar- arguably, like, in a sexist way, her femaleness to be like, do you, like, endorse? I think this is, like, the least empathetic yeah. thing he's ever said. Like, what, you stand by that? Mm. And, um, and she does. But her books and her diaries that are published later reveal that she was much more doubtful of him and his philosophy, even at the time. And that's not to excuse her silence on the matter. You know, we've, we live in a time where we talk about like white silence is violence and like (laughs) that type of thing. She later acknowledges that she and her husband had been both pretty blind uh, to what was going on in Germany. And you have to keep in mind, they were invited as guests to, you know, come inspect these fields. They're seeing a lot of the beautiful accomplishments that the Nazis had, had accomplished, right? They, they built, you know, these huge airfields and they rebounded the economy and they had done a lot of things. And I think she, they were very awed by these accomplishments. So I think it's, it's kind of interesting that she doesn't, I think, hit the top list of, a woman in aviation when we think about it mentally. And I think partly because she's round up, wound up in these domestic scandals, right? With her, her husband and his anti-Semitism yeah. and their baby and their, that well, loss. And, and she's overshadowed really by her, him. by him um, being, you know, more predominantly known for aviation. You know, I don't think to highlight her, would essentially say that you're downplaying him and it's like, no, they're different and they did different things and to not mention her is to downplay her. Yeah. Hey, Kelsey, I don't think our listeners know about the new upcoming project that we're working on. Which one? The video series. Oh, the video series. That's awesome. (laughs) I know. So I thought we could tell them a little bit about what the project is, how it's funded and what the purpose is. Well, 
We are producing a video series, 25 episodes on U.S. history, 25 episodes on world history. And the point of these is to provide teachers who don't know women's history with like a 10-minute video that they could play for their class. So say you're teaching a lesson on the American Revolution. Here's 10 minutes about women in that time period. And it could be a foundation that you can springboard from and do something really cool on those women. And these videos are, yes, you, but they are fully scripted. You can look at the scripts. They're nicely edited with some really great content. Yep. They're vetted by historians, two PhDs, at least in history. So, you know, people smarter than me. (laughs) (laughs) But they're going to be free and they're on YouTube. And they'll be on YouTube. They also have a comedian from Hollywood who is helping to make them funny. So it's, you know, because I'm like kind of boring. Uh, No, very (laughs) funny. (laughs) But that's awesome. So they're really engaging and they're really cool content. So more to come there. So we have those coming out. And those are funded through grants? Through grants, through our patrons. Um, So their, you know, contributions to us through Patreon are supporting that project and then we also have a lot of people that have been donating through instagram facebook we have a venmo account you can find us there that's awesome Um, and they're making those contributions so yeah it's an amazing thing and if this is something that you're like yes that's what teachers need any every penny helps because it is a really expensive project it yeah totally and we had a match donor for a while there too which is really cool so definitely if you're interested in those yeah feel free to donate. You can donate right on our website, Instagram, and Venmo. Yeah. Which is awesome. Great work. I'm excited to see the rest of those videos. Oh, Brooke, thanks for your support of the project. Awesome. So here are some of her accomplishments. She is the first woman to earn a a glider's pilot license. In 1933, she goes on this five-month, 30,000-mile survey of the transcontinental air transport through Greenland, Iceland, Russia, England, Spain, Africa, and Brazil. Whoa. So like world traveler, she sets a world record for radio communication between aircraft and ground stations when she made contact. She wins a bunch of different awards, the Hubbard Gold Medal for her achievements as co-pilot with her husband on a number of different things. And so what's interesting, just we're going to contrast her now with Amelia Earhart, is just she's an introspective, nerdy woman <laughs> who wants to, like, have a family and go on these adventures. Yeah. And is just so unbelievably different than her contemporary Amelia Earhart. So, Brooke, what do you know about Amelia Earhart? Um, she was a bamf, you know, essentially she was like willing to like anything, anytime a man told her she couldn't do something, she was like, well, not only am I going to do it, but I'm going to do it 10 times faster, <laughs> stronger, harder, faster. And she did, you know, she achieved a lot of her, her greatness, but I think, and I won't allude to this if people don't know it, cause I'll let you tell it the story, but the mystery behind her is really cool. Yeah. She's incredible. So One thing that's interesting about her to contrast them is that Anne Moreau chooses this very traditionally female route, right? She goes to a women's college, which I guess she does get a college degree, um, which is great. But she, you know, she goes this like English literature route. Amelia Earhart 
by contrast, keeps a scrapbook of all the badass things women in her time are doing. <laughs> women who are going into male-dominated fields. And she's like, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter what that field is. Yeah. She just wants to be a part of that. She's like, look at this chick. She's an automobile mechanic. I could do that. Yeah, right? she's very like... Rawr, that's mine. I want to try that. Yeah. And I think Anne writes about how when she has met Amelia Earhart, she was a little off put by it because she's a lady, you know, and Amelia <laughs> is not. <laughs> she takes her first flying lesson in January 1921. She becomes the first woman to graduate from the Glenn Curtis School. One interesting thing about her early flying career is that she actually was, like, kind of bad at it, <laughs> which just really surprises me. One of her biographers wrote, Unfortunately, though, highly intelligent, a quick learner, and possessed of great enthusiasm, Amelia did not, it seems, possess a natural ability as a pilot. There is no disparagement of Amelia. It is simply the view of many of her contemporaries in the flying world. Indeed, given this apparently important drawback, it is to her great credit that she was subsequently able to achieve so much. I think that's a really cool lesson in in grit, in failure. Like it's okay to fail that. over yeah. and over again. And I also think it just speaks to the scrapbookness of this woman that she was like, I wanna, I wanna do, I wanna be in this field. I wanna try this and I might fail 10 times, but I'm going to get up. Well, I think it would be really interesting, um, you know, approach to look at, too, of demographically where they are, or excuse me, geographically where they grew up. You know, one is very much prim, proper East Coast. East Coast lady, and, and she's from Kansas. Yeah, she's a Midwesterner. Is she, Kansas or Iowa? Is it Kansas? Kansas. You know, and like there is a little bit of a grit to the Midwestern women of this time because of their upbringing and you know, pioneering and, you know, all these different things. So I think that could be a really cool contrast to look at too, is like two women geographically in, in similar fields, interests and adventure, but how, what makes them so different and it does geography play at all here. Yeah. Which would be cool. Yeah. She actually does move to Massachusetts with her family. One thing that I love about her story is that her mother and her sister helped finance some of her purchases of planes. Cool. So it, it's not just her in this. It's like a family of women that are supporting each other. One of the things I love about Amelia Earhart is that she is looking for ways to uplift other women. Okay. I think I, I always say that I would I could never live as a woman in any period other than the one I'm in and like frankly I'd love to live a hundred years from now when you know mm. more rights are available to women <laughs> and like you're not questioned every minute for having thoughts that's really funny um but anyway I love that she looks around her and sees that there are so many women that need to be empowered inspired and uplifted and so she actually invests into a local airport and gets a lot of press because she starts promoting flying for other women and trying to get other women doing what she's doing. Um, and I think that's really cool to bring other women to the table and say, like, come join me. Like, you are just as capable of doing this. I, I love it. I can also, like, can't you just envision her going to a cocktail party and 
like the conversations that are going on and she has to sit with the women's table and she's like, ah, I think she would probably lose her mind. I would lose like, my mind. I wouldn't yeah. be able to go back to the 1920s. No. I'd be like, what are we talking about? I'm sorry. You lost me. Crochet? Like, no. Like, you oh, you burnt the turkey? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm lost. Yeah. Not to say that those parts and roles had nothing to play at the time, but you could see a woman of her caliber and her gravitas being like, ugh, get me out of these situations and put me in pants and give me a plane. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of accounts of her being very robust. Like, I think the news reports of her and the, her speeches, because she just did not give to anything. She was yeah. just like, I'm sorry, what did you ask me? No. Yeah. <laughs> Next question. She's very bold. <laughs> So she gets the nickname Lady Lindy. And we started this by talking about how weird it is that she's called Lady Lindy right, when yeah. he has a wife, Mrs. Lindbergh, um, who's also an aviator. <laughs> <laughs> and um, anyway, so she uh, gets this nickname because she's invited by two two men to be the first woman to fly across the Atlantic. And that's the title that Lindbergh has, the first man to do that. And she is invited. She's only a passenger on the plane. The two men are piloting and co-piloting the flight. So she doesn't even fly it. And she was a little bit embarrassed when people started calling her Lady Lindy because she knew she didn't fly the plane. But Um, also like has like nothing to do with him. Yeah. (laughs) Like. Why are you calling me that? Right. This doesn't make any sense. Yeah, it's kind of a bizarre nickname. And I think it's interesting that she's almost like, yeah, like she's embarrassed by it. Well, I think it also shows like the media of that time, like they would nickname people all. It's like every media source from that time period was like, you know what we should call them? The Uh, female version of that that man. man. Yeah. (laughs) That'd be great if she... Didn't have a woman's name. We'd sell more papers. Yeah, yeah. Let's belittle her and put lady in front of it. Yeah. And then equate her to the male counterpart. Yeah. This will be great. I love, there's this one news, this is a little tangential, but there's this newspaper clipping that's like, Michael Phelps wins another, you know, whatever. And then in tiny little print underneath it, it's like, Katie Ledecky breaks the world record. Oh my God, no. You're like, she broke the freaking world record. Why are we talking about Michael Phelps right now? (laughs) I I mean, I'll give you antidotal. And I um, broke my high school record for um, goals scored. And in the newspaper, they wrote Dylan Tanger's sister. Oh my didn't god, they give did me not my name. Do that. I was like, all right then. Was your brother a good athlete? Phenomenal athlete. Oh, great. I don't want to take anything away from Mr. Lindbergh of my family, but <laughs> you gotta be kidding me. I was so bull. I like called the I called the newspaper. Norwich Free Press, if anyone wants to look it up. <laughs> gotta be kidding me. Dylan Tanger's sister. sister. Good well, job. I'm going to call Jordan. you that from here It was here like the newspaper <laughs> patted me on the head. I was like, what is happening? Oh, my gosh. Um, so, yeah, that's still uh, – that was only in 2004. Yeah. So, oh my best of luck women out there. Yeah, in the 30s. Keep the fight. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that's interesting – uh, similarity between Anne Morell and Amelia Earhart is that they're both writers. Earhart actually taught English um, in the interim. She was a social worker. You know, um, I just feel like I'm identifying with these women more and more. Loved English, also love aviation. <laughs> it's just like 
favorite episode. Yeah. Um, very cool that they're both writers. Yeah. She wrote a book about the flight uh, across the Atlantic, which she named 20 Hours and 40 Minutes. Um, and she also went around the country talking about this. And uh, I think partly to not only talk about this amazing accomplishment, but also to talk about women in aviation and spread, okay. you know, to, to sort of like be that face of women can also be doing this too. She was well-received, and uh, she becomes this big spokesperson. She does get involved in competitive flying on the theme of sexism in her era. There's this big competition that she gets involved in um, that brings 26 female pilots to come and do this, like, big competition. She ends up actually not placing very well, but this is, like, so cute of her because she goes back to, like, help a person who had struggled during the competition and so she ends up placing like third or fourth it gets nicknamed though the powder puff derby um instead of like you know our audience can't see my eye rolling i know it's pretty it's deep a, it's aggressive Can, will they come back um, i don't know i think i've gone <laughs> cross-eyed but she ends up forming a group called the 99s yes oh I forgot about this. Yeah. She becomes the first president, and their aim of the 99s was to provide closer relationship among pilots and unite them in any movement that may be for their benefit and that of aviation in general. This is a group of badass women, 99 of them. Bamps. One of the things I really like love about this is that not only is she getting women together in aviation to compete to show off their talents, um, but she's all but but it's a bringing together, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's what's so cool about competition is it's it's let's all be in this same space together. Well, I think it's one of those I'm you can't compete with me because I want you to win too. Yeah, and that's huge. That's amazing. It's it, so this time cool. period for someone. For a woman to be doing that, yeah, where there wasn't really seats at the table for more than one person, yeah, especially a woman who is, you know, the only one there, and she was like, no, 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 there's seats for everybody. Where do you want to sit? Yeah, yeah, she's incredible, and she gets involved not only in these women organizations, but she gets involved in aeronautical organizations mm -hmm. for men. She becomes officers. Um, and I think because she's involved in so much, she's really widely respected across Well, I think something aviation. that we're not touching on is her marriage. Yeah. And the difference, the stark difference between hers and <laughs> um, Anne. So, you know, maybe there's something we can touch on there. Yeah. Her relationship with her husband <laughs> is pretty hilarious. Um, one of the things that I love about it is that – she doesn't really want to marry him. It's like no. a kind of a reluctant. He like step. follows her around. There's like some yeah. cute stories of him like asking her to marry him like ten times, and she's like, "Finally, yeah. finally, I will. That's fine." Yeah. <laughs> so um, she agonizes over the choice, and um, they are eventually married in 1931. And she later described their marriage as, quote, a reasonable partnership conducted under a satisfactory system of dual control. It, it's like someone they it seems like they had pretty mutual respect for each other. Yeah. But I think I think there was like an argument too to be had at that time period that if 
you were married, you had more doors opened to you. Mm -hmm. And we talked about it in one of our episodes about the Olympics, about chaperones. Yeah. That a lot of women couldn't go places by themselves. They couldn't attend events without a chaperone. Yeah. And I think, you know, that was part of it for her is like being married provided more opportunity for her um, in that time period. Yeah. I mean, she makes very clear that she is. This is not a traditional marriage, yeah. and that she is not stopping. She's not cooking dinner. She's not going to be home by five. Like, yeah, <laughs> she is on. She is on a mission. This is her dream. This is her life. These are her goals. And I, I just, I mean, yeah, she and Anne could not be more different in the way that they dealt with their marriages. And, I, you know, and the fact that she's like a satisfactory system of doing like what? Like those aren't well, words. Well, it's a very, it's a very scientific response. Yeah. Because I imagine people would constantly ask her this question. Well, does your husband know where you are? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Like right. I bet that that was pretty oh, often constant. like what who's taking care of your kids? Like those, those age old questions that we get asked and that we're trying to break out of and – she probably, it was probably ridiculous. Like, so who's cooking dinner if you're not home? You know? Yeah. Um, he has two hands. <laughs> um, she does eventually go back and fly across the Atlantic solo in 1932 with her husband's permission. Oh, thank goodness. It's <laughs> about to start a riot. <laughs> um, she also becomes the first woman in 1935 um, to fly solo across the Pacific from Honolulu to Oakland. And this is what sort of inspires her to do her probably most well-known. Oh, it has like the biggest vocabulary word. What is, how do you say when you fly around the world? Circumnavigation. <laughs> Thank you. It's like, talk about your $10 word. Yeah. She circumnavigated the globe. Yeah. Well, <laughs> this is the mystery part that we we're talking about. Yes. So she begins setting these records um, and trying to do firsts around different parts of the world that, that people hadn't been doing. She continues um, to work for getting more women. She developed into aviation. Um, she gets these kind of high profile friendships, probably most notably with someone like Eleanor Roosevelt. I know. Who, First lady. Who, yeah. <laughs> who's also not afraid to fly. What, you know, she's kind of an interesting one. They bonded too. over their short haircuts. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so she becomes, she becomes friends with, with these big profile people. She becomes a consultant in careers for women at Purdue University. Um, they also start chucking money at her um, because they're realizing how beneficial this can be to get more qualified people doing this type of work. Yep. Um, she gets money to do aeronautical research. She starts doing research to try to figure out like what's causing some problems with planes. And so I think it's important that to, to bring to the table in a conversation about her that she's not just this daredevil who like gets in planes and does crazy stuff. Like she also is a respected researcher and scientist and, you know, social justice warrior trying to get more women into this field that is so male dominated. But it is in this context, she's well known. She's super involved. She has, you know, and, and unlike Anne, who is sort of a hermit trying to just be with her family and do, do those sort of things. It's in this context that she begins planning the probably the most well-known thing that she did, which is to circumnavigate the globe, to fly 
around the globe. And so the first attempt doesn't go well and they, they restart. So she, they leave in from Florida and mm-hmm. they fly around the globe and they make it all the way and they're flying across the Pacific um, in their last leg of the flight, which is so horrifying Yeah, when their plane goes missing. And one of the things that's really interesting about this is that she had flown a very similar flight pattern already. Like she had, yeah. well, she had set that record. And so this isn't necessarily like out of her ability and it's definitely not new. So when they land at their last stop before making this last leg, they have everything in the engine checked. Um, the spark plugs are cleaned, the fuel pump, everything gets a once over. They leave anything that they don't need for this this last leg, including parachutes, which could be problematic, and some survival equipment. Her co-pilot, Noonan, had trouble getting his chronometers accurately set because time signals were off and could not be picked up by the radio. There are reports that she they're both really tired, as I would be probably I'm if sure. I had just gone around the entire world. Noonan was known to be an alcoholic, and so the, there's evidence that he drank a little bit, um, and he was the navigator. I mean, I would get tired just flying as a passenger, <laughs> right. let alone actually being the pilot. Like, mm, and in those nap? types of planes, yeah, know, there's like, no autopilot. <laughs> like, I like, I'm just thinking about like flights to Europe that we've probably both taken like 16, 17 hours. And it's like, yeah, no, I'm not flying for that long. <laughs> Wait, there's 16 hour flights to Europe? I don't know. I That's was kind of long. It took me, what? Eight hours to get to England? Yeah. Depending on where you fly from. Yeah. Totally. I mean, that's yeah. st- eight hours that's on a, a plane. That's a long time. That's a long time. And you think about the pilot has to be alive and awake and doing the things. The whole It's not like autopilot is available. Yeah. Anyways, food for thought. And that's in modern times. <laughs> yep. This is a rickety plane going This is a rickety plane. <laughs> the yeah. world. So she... They disappear off the runway. They use every inch of the runway available to them. Nobody really knows what happens next. And they're gone on this flight. They get one clear, people on the ground get one clear message from her. She says, Overcast will listen on hour and half hour on 3105. They send this message out and it's sort of radio silence in those intermediate periods as she's turning things, as she's turning it off, right? As she's turning off the radio. Okay. There is some controversy in the scenario. There's one message that's received and reported and in the log as follows. K-H-A-Q-Q calling, Itasca, we must be on you, but we cannot see you but gas is running low, been unable to reach you by radio. We are flying at altitude 1,000 feet. Another operator on the ship logged the report in the third person as follows. Earhart on NW now sees running out of gas only one half hour left. Can't hear us at all. We hear her and are sending on 3105 
500, same time, constantly, and listening in for her frequency. So there's sort of this discrepancy in how these are are recorded, Mm -hmm. um, which is a little problematic, but they don't get a fix on the plane. They don't find her. Suddenly, what's not really disputed, they hear her voice. We are circling but cannot hear you. Go ahead on 75,000 now or on schedule time on half hour. And so they keep looking for her. They keep looking for her. And then she comes in with another message. We received your signals but are unable to get a minimum. Please take a bearing on us and answer on 3105 with voice. For an hour, some signals were received from the plane at that same strength, indicating that the plane was probably circling the ship's position. They start making black smoke, which trailed for about 10 miles. She does not respond to any questions. She did report 200 miles out, then 100 miles out, coming up fast. And the last message anyone received, we are in line position. We will repeat this message. We are running north and south. All attempts to make further contact after that are fruitless. Wow. And they're gone. And so I'm, this this is really traumatizing, I imagine, for the people on the ground because they know she's there somewhere. somewhere. And it's I love the speculations of, of where she is and what Where happened. do you think she is? Oh, she's in the space-time continuum, just out there flying. <laughs> Waiting to land when when women get it right out here. Yeah. <laughs> She's like, if you caught up yet to me, no, I'll keep flying. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. There's so her many Her plane things. was never found. Yeah. No, it's wild. No evidence. They've done a ton of like recovery missions Tons. to try and find her. It's like the the mystery story of the century. It is the – it was the largest naval search for a civilian ever conducted. Wow. And – it's, it's like the Bermuda Triangle. <laughs> it's it's wild. She's just gone. So it's weird to talk about women pioneers and end with one of them dying. And I don't know if it's because- allegedly allegedly they did they did confirm her death later on. Well, not confirm, but they called her death. Called it. Yeah. yeah. It is weird. It's weird ending there because you want to. Th- see her triumph and finish the journey and like end the story and and end the story but i think that's part of being a pioneer is that being a pioneer is risky and yeah there there are consequences and women need to be allowed to fail just as much as men yeah and i think women's bodies the, the seeing women die, hearing about women die, for some reason is like harder on people. It's like, oh, here's you know, and I, and I don't know why that is. You know, women well, in war. I mean, this, it's a great die. example. Is like, you know, the topics that relate to women are often not touched because they're hard. Yeah, but yeah, we talk about war. Yeah, and like, and that's not men, hard. Men dying, <laughs> just in like many mass number. I mean, I can, and we, you know. When you think about the imagery and the images you see from war in classrooms and you think this has been appropriate our whole lives, but talking about women's bodies, yeah, not appropriate, it just doesn't compute. But yeah, I think this is a great example of like a woman that went out into the universe and was just like not going to take no for an answer 
And it wasn't about fame. It was about commitment to the task at hand and knowing what she was reaching for. And, and it, it wasn't about all the other things that, you know, couldn't come into play in that moment. But, you know, it makes me immediately think of this woman and her life and ending in tragedy. You want this explanation. Krista McAuliffe yep. is probably a great segue of a pioneer of an aviation. And we're going to end our theme. Yeah. I think a good way to end this episode in talking about her and introducing this theme of women explorers and pioneers is with a quote from Amelia Earhart herself. She said, women must try to do things as men have tried. When they fail, their failure must be but a challenge to others. And I think it's really cool that she didn't complete the journey and that it was left to other women to follow her and try to finish that journey around the world. Very so cool. she's really inspirational. But I think also just, you know, Lady Lindy. <laughs> I can't. I can't leave it on that one. Yeah. Like, no, no. She had a name. She, she existed. Name. So did Anne. So did Anne. Um, yeah, so impressive. Thank you, Kelsey. Thanks, bro. Thanks so much for listening to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts to bring more voices to the conversation. We really appreciate that effort. Until next time.